Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Psalm 24. While you're turning there, last night at men's group, Micah mentioned that he had spoken to someone. I don't remember if you said it was a friend, an associate, a pastor, but that you had spoken to someone and said that here at GCA, all we do is just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. And apparently the person you were speaking to said, well, that's like cheating, right? Why? Why? I know. Because apparently, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because he said it's it's already written down for you. It's already there. You don't have to, apparently you don't have to make up anything. But it's true. I thought about that a lot last night. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, why is that? You know, it is true at GCA we're very devoted to what the Word of God says. And last night we were looking out of the book of John where Jesus himself kept pointing back to the Word of God and how the Word of God testified of himself. So we were emphasizing the necessity of understanding the Bible for what it actually says. And what I realized last night, what I remembered, was Tom and I come out of a church in Los Angeles where, to put it mildly, there was a lot of stuff that was just made up. And I hesitate to call him the pastor there. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> but the guy who did the talking on Sundays, he used to brag that he was complimented by one of his professors in Bible college who had said to him in a complimentary way that he was a creative theologian. And I remember thinking, I don't think theology is supposed to be creative. There is one creator, and he has given us his word so that we can have a better understanding of that one creator. But I am really convinced that our job as the church, as Christians, our job is to study the word and then align our thinking with what the word says. And there's no way that you can align your thinking with what the word says if you don't know what the word says. And that's why we concentrate so much on what the word actually says. I'm a student of preaching. I listen to preachers every day. Listening, and and really since the advent of COVID, with everybody going online, I'm able to drop in on pretty much everybody in town and see what everybody is saying. And I am really astounded, though I probably shouldn't be, by how people treat the Bible. Tom mentioned last night in men's group that you went and heard a preacher who read maybe a verse or two out of the Bible and then closed it and then just talked about whatever he wanted to talk about. And so much of what passes for preaching these days in the modern church is little more than storytelling or opinionating. 
And the truth of the matter is, we all have stories, and we all have opinions. And just because a guy stands up and happens to be the best lit, loudest person in the room doesn't make his stories or his opinions any more valuable than any of yours. The only thing I've got for you of any value is the word of God. That's all I can give you week by week that I know is going to be beneficial to you, that is going to feed your soul, that is going to show you the way to eternal life. These are the words of life. I can't imagine setting these aside so that I can tell sports analogies and fishing stories. If you want to be entertained, church is not the place you're supposed to go. That's right. I talked today to Wolfgang, and part of our conversation was how the church has changed in the last 2,000 years. Because 2,000 years ago, to say that you were a Christian was a death sentence. You were signing up for martyrdom if you said you were a Christian, especially if you were a Jewish Christian. And that's how Jesus himself defined Christianity. He said to his followers, take up your cross and follow me. And of course, a cross is a place of death place of torture. So he described the Christian journey as separating yourself from the world, being different than the world, knowing that the world was going to hate you. This is the same Jesus who said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. If you're truly walking out genuine biblical Christianity, the world is going to hate you. And Jesus said, sacrifice yourself even be willing to sacrifice all of the relationships of this lifetime so that he has complete and utter singular superiority in your life. And even if you have to lay down your own life in order to stand firmly on God's word, he essentially said that's worth it because he said, take up your cross, follow me. And now, 2,000 years later, there's no real price to pay for being a Christian. And as a consequence, the church markets Christianity in a way that is directly opposite to the biblical description of Christianity or the historic version of Christianity. Modern Christianity markets Christianity on the basis of come to Jesus and your life will get better. And you'll have more money and your kids will run faster and jump higher and we've got classes for you and come learn Taekwondo. And then they gather people in a room and entertain them. I don't know exactly when it happened, but at some point, preachers decided that they were comedians and that their job was to entertain the congregation. I mean, I'm a humorous guy. I'm a fan of humor, but I use it like punctuation. And I realize that when I'm laying out so much information at a time that every once in a while, we all need to collectively catch our breath, shuffle in our seats, settle down, and get ready to go again. And that's what I use humor for. But I don't believe that my job standing here is to entertain you so that you'll come back again to be entertained again. I'm not competing for the world's entertainment dollars. The only reason that you should support GCA or give to GCA is because you find value to what we're doing. And what we're doing is exactly what Micah said, just going through the Bible verse by verse, 
chapter by chapter so that we have a better understanding of what God's word says because Jesus himself put so much emphasis on what does the word of God say. So if we're actually being Christians, we would share that interest in what the word of God actually says. So I don't know if people think that's cheating or think it's too easy. Sometimes I jokingly say, my job is well-defined for me. I just plagiarize the book. That's all I do. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm telling you what has always been in the Bible. The amazing part is how little of the world actually knows what's in the Bible. And that's why some people hear what we're doing and say, oh, finally, it's like a breath of fresh air. I can get away from the bread and circuses and just listen to what the word of God actually says. And those are the people who continue to support us, and I'm very, very grateful to them. But in the end, if you're going to church somewhere, quote unquote, bunny ears around the word church, if you're going to church somewhere and all you're being is entertained, that's uh, no different than what the world can do for you. The world can amuse you. The world can entertain you. The world can't save you. And only the word of God can introduce you in a revelatory way to the maker of heaven and earth and then sustain you through this whole lifetime in your growth in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're only going to know that by knowing the word of God. That's why we continue to concentrate on the word of God, because our job as a church, our purpose, our function as a church, is to tell people about Jesus and him alone. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, I just had to get that off my chest, because when Micah said it last night, there was a part of me that said, well, yeah, that is all we do. And what's wrong with that? That is all we do. So, so with that in mind, Psalm 24. Psalm 24 has basically two divisions to it that are separated by the word Selah at the end of verse 6. The first part of this short psalm is a declaration of God's absolute sovereignty. I like it when I'm reading out of the Bible, reading some historic biblical character, some person like King David, and I see that his theology and ours align with each other. That's very reassuring. So David here is going to say that God is the maker of heaven and earth and that he is the absolute sovereign. And then he's going to say, who can ascend to go to that God, that righteous, holy God, who can go up the hill of God to the holy place of God. And then starting in verse 7, he starts making declarations about how the city itself and the temple itself, in a very anthropomorphic way, needs to lift up its head and recognize that the Lord himself is coming to be among them. And that that cannot be ignored. That even the gates, even the doors, have to lift up their eyes and pay attention to the fact that Yahweh, the king, the creator, the sovereign one, is entering their gates. So that's basically the whole psalm. Now, that second half of the psalm, which I just described as even the gates, even the ancient doors lifting up and acknowledging 
that the Lord is among them. Some commentators have said that what inspired David here was the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant from Hebron to Jerusalem after Jerusalem was established as the capital of Israel. The temple itself had not been built yet. Solomon is going to build that temple. But the Ark did come to Jerusalem. That's the occasion when David took off his outer clothes and danced in the street before the Ark to the embarrassment of his wife. But I don't believe that's what David is talking about because he says the king of glory is coming in and then he even answers the question, who is the king of glory? And his answer is Yahweh, the strong and mighty. So what he is describing in this psalm is Yahweh, God himself, the strong and mighty creator God, coming to his temple. And when he comes to his temple, even the physical structure of Jerusalem needs to recognize in a very prophetic way, needs to lift up their eyes and needs to recognize the blessing of the Lord himself being in their midst. And I think what David is doing is prophetically describing Jesus' triumphal entry into the city and Jesus going into the temple and cleansing the temple. So, all right, verse 1, now that we've got the overview out of the way. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. There's a pretty sovereign statement. David launches right in by identifying who he's talking about. And he uses the name Yahweh. The earth belongs to Yahweh, and everything contained in the earth belongs to Yahweh. The world and those who dwell in it. Not just the physical world. Sometimes people who want to argue against God's sovereignty will say, well, yeah, God is in charge of the physical stuff of the world. But he's not in charge of people. Individual people still have the freedom of will. They are free moral agents so that they can make up their own mind and so that they can choose or reject Jesus or God. That's not how David sees the people of the earth. David says that Yahweh owns the entirety of the world and those who dwell in it. In other words, God created people. People belong to him. And therefore, everything that they are, everything that they have, everything that happens to them is under the jurisdiction of the absolute sovereign one who decided to create it all in the first place. The world and those who dwell in it and the whole earth belongs to the Lord. Why? Verse 2, because he made it. Seems pretty obvious. Because he founded it upon the seas. If you go back to Genesis, we see that God's spirit was hovering above the waters. And then he separated the water from the dry land. That's what David is talking about here. There was the water, there were the seas, and then he created the land upon it and put people on that land. So it was God himself who was founding the earth upon the seas and establishing it upon the rivers or upon the bodies of water. So if that's who he is, if he is the maker of everything, then who's going to ascend up into the hill of the Lord? Who can qualify to go walk before God, the mighty, holy, glorious maker of heaven and earth? Tom, if you would, 
look up Psalm 2, verse 6 for just a moment because this will help us to define the hill that he is talking about. On Sunday, we talked about the fact that Jerusalem is surrounded by seven mountains, that in fact Jerusalem is in these mountains, and that when you go to Jerusalem, the Bible speaks of it as going up to Jerusalem. Wherever else you are to get to Jerusalem, you have to go up. And that's why so many of these psalms are referred to as psalms of ascent, because they were psalms that would be repeated by the Israelites as they were ascending up to Jerusalem. So this seems to be a reference. This hill of the Lord seems to be a reference to Jerusalem and the hill within Jerusalem where the worship of God would take place. In fact, it's that very place where God has established his king, Jesus Christ. Read it for us, Tom. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So in that verse, Zion, Jerusalem, is equated with the holy hill. So now we know what David's thinking is when he refers to the hill of the Lord. And then he says, but who can do that? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and go to the place of the worship of God? There's a very particular kind of person, a particular type of person who can stand in his holy place. That's the second half of verse 3. Who can stand in his holy place? Now, maybe David is referring to heaven as the holy hill. And who is able to stand in the holy place of God in heaven. But I actually do believe that he's speaking here geographically. That he is talking about Jerusalem. The place where God has placed his own name. The place where the worship of God takes place. Who may stand in his holy place. And the answer is verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. It would be easy to read past that phraseology, but I think what David is getting at is both your behavior and your attitude. What's your internal thinking? What is your internal thought process? And what is your behavior? How do you conduct yourself? How do you exercise yourself in this world? Do you do it in a sinful way, or do you have clean hands? And are your thoughts thoughts that are in line with this world? Or are you chasing after the things of God so that you have what David would call here a pure heart? And the reason I think that is because the second half of the verse says, in describing that person who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. I find those Two really interesting things for David to point out, because David could have gone for any of the Ten Commandments. He could have said, he that honors his father and mother. He could have said, he that does not kill. He could have said, the one who doesn't covet. And instead, he went right for, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, and don't lie. The one who can come to the holy hill to worship is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. That is just one of the commandments, but also one of the precepts of the Bible that perhaps we don't put enough emphasis on. 
I think I've drilled it into your head by now that the most often cited sin in the Bible is that sin of pride. But part of pride is being willing to use and abuse other people for your own sordid gain and being willing to lie to other people, to bear false witness against other people. And the reason that leapt out at me today is because our entire society right now, our entire world right now, our politics right now are so chock full of nonstop lying that we've gotten used to it, we're accustomed to it, and we're just sort of kind of okay with it because we go, well, of course he's lying, he's a politician. Politicians lie. Our world is just covered in lies, in fake news, and in swearing deceitfully. People who say, yes, this is true, you can count on it. So many of the stories we see in the press these days, if you wait two days, you're going to find out that it wasn't true in the first place. And those stories happen every day because our society is built on lies, because we're a bunch of human beings trying to self-govern. We've thrown off God. We don't want God. We don't want Christ. We don't want his rulership. We don't want his leadership. And therefore, we're going to govern our own affairs. We're going to make our own decisions. Consequently, all of our decisions are based in lies, nonstop lies. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. When we were going through the Proverbs, do you recall how very frequently this subject of honesty came up? Being an honest judge, being an honest witness, being honest with your neighbor. It just kept coming up and coming up. And here is David saying the same thing, that we should put away falsehood. We should not be swearing deceitfully. Okay, so here's a basic principle that I've worked on for years now. Basic operating principle. When the Bible says something and tells you how to be, tells you to do something, and then it says it many, many times, why is that? You need to be told. Like the Bible doesn't say, breathe. You're, you're gonna. But the stuff that you fall into by your human nature, by your depraved nature, the Bible has to tell you over and over and over again, stop it, quit it, don't do that. Don't kill, don't lust after things you don't have, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Honor your father and mother. And don't bear false witness. Why is that one of the top 10? Why is that right there in the 10 commandments? Because that is our nature. That is our character. We are just liars by nature. Charlie, you got four little boys, in case you didn't know. When you get home, you'll see them. They'll introduce themselves to you. Yeah, did you have to teach them to lie? But do they lie? Yeah. And it starts right away. In fact, Solomon tells us that babies come out of the womb speaking lies. And you don't even have to tell them to do it. It's just their nature. It's built into their fallen human nature. And so the Bible has to tell us over and over again, 
Don't be like that. Don't do that. Now, have you ever told any of your sons ever, have you ever said to them, don't do that? Yeah. Do they do it anyway? Yeah. And you know why that is? Because you can't change them internally. You can try to change their outward behavior, and you can do that through discipline, but what you can't do is change their heart. God has to change your heart. Christ has to change your heart to take you from your natural lying deceitfulness to bring you to honesty, to bring you to being forthright with other people, to be fair, to have equal weights in your scales, to use Solomonic language. That's not the way we naturally are. God has to do that for you. So if it is God who is doing that for you, it is God who is improving your behavior. That's why you have clean hands. That's why you would have a pure heart. And that is why you are not lifted up in your falsehood and you're not swearing deceitfully. In a moment, David himself is going to say that. David is so convinced of the sovereignty of God that he says, even in order for you to come and worship that God, God has to first do something for you. He has to change you internally. He has to draw you to himself because he's the only one who is holy and righteous and who can give you not only genuine holiness and righteousness, but can give you the awareness of your sinfulness, of your internal failings. He has to do all that for you. Look at verse 5. That man who is not lifted up in his soul to falsehood, the one who does not swear deceitfully, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, he shall receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So where does righteousness come from? We just got done all agreeing that human beings are natural-born liars, egocentric little balls of protoplasm running around, flailing away with their pride and doing whatever is good for them, regardless of who else it hurts. If you're going to have genuine righteousness, if you're going to have clean hands and a pure heart, that is a gift, a blessing from God. God has to give you that in order for there to be salvation within you. Salvation of your soul, salvation of your life, salvation in your continuance in the land, in David's case. All is a result of God who is the source of all goodness. He is the source of every positive thing that you get in this life. It cannot be you in your flesh accomplishing these things. Verse 6. And this is the generation of those who seek him. Generation is an interesting translation. The little Hebrew word door can also mean people of a common descent. It can mean people of the same nationality. And I think that's the way that David is using the word here. Because he says, this is the people group who actually seek God, who seek your face, and then there's just the word Jacob. He just says Jacob there. So the NASB decided that they would add a word. And they added the word even. So this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face. Even Jacob. I don't think that's true. I don't think it is Jacob nationally who are the ones who are seeking God. The LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, 
add the words, pay heed, Jacob. I think what David is actually getting at is he is saying, pay attention, kind of like the LSB says. Pay attention that this is the kind of people that God accepts. This is the kind of people that he will receive. Those people receive the blessing from the Lord, and they receive righteousness from the God of their salvation, and that is the people group that I'm talking about, and those are the only ones who ever seek God. They're the ones who seek your face. Pay attention, Jacob, because the very next word is Salo. Think about that. Pay heed to this. People, by their nature, are simply not going to pay heed to God or not going to pay attention to God or not going to follow after God or certainly not going to seek God. But if God does something for you, if God opens your heart, if God draws your attention, if God awakens you to your own sinful estate, if God does something positive for you, that starts the relationship. And we know that once God starts something, he does not negate it. He does not abandon it. He finishes everything that he starts. And if he's the one who has started the relationship with you, then you are among that people group who can ascend to the hill of the Lord, who can stand in his holy place. You are the ones with clean hands and a pure heart. And you're not lifted up in falsehood. And you're not swearing deceitfully because you've received this blessing from the Lord and received righteousness from the God of your salvation. The end result of all God's good gifts to you is your salvation. And these are the people who seek him, who seek your face. So pay attention. Think about that. That takes us to verse 7. And there is a sudden shift in tone in very poetic fashion, and I believe in very prophetic fashion, David says, lift up your heads, O gates. We know that gates do not have heads. So obviously David is engaging in anthropomorphizing. There's a big word. Use it later in a sentence. Impress your friends. The Bible oftentimes does this where it gives human characteristics to inanimate objects. So lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The idea of lift up your head and be lifted up is very much like David earlier praying to God that God would lift himself up. And what it means is awaken yourself. Be aware of this. Pay attention. Here he's saying to the gates of Jerusalem. Here he's saying to the ancient doors of Jerusalem, lift up your heads. Lift yourself up. Pay attention. Why? Because the king of glory is coming in. Pay attention. And then he defines who he means by the king of glory in verse 8. And he says, who is the king of glory? And he answers the question, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. That would be him. And then in verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. He's saying it twice now for emphasis. He's telling Jerusalem, pay attention to what is happening. Your Lord, 
the maker of heaven and earth, is going to walk through your gates, is going to come through your doors. And here is the warning way in advance. Pay attention. Be aware of it. This is coming. And then Jesus comes to Jerusalem, rides that donkey that no one's ever ridden before. And he comes through the gates of the city. And as the people are putting their clothes and their palm branches and their robes in the streets and they're crying, Hosanna to the son of David, ready to crown him as the king of Israel. He ends up crying over Jerusalem, crying out and cursing over Jerusalem and saying, if you had known what is happening in front of you right now, this day, and you don't understand. I mean, not only did Daniel predict in advance how long the time was going to be between the decree from Cyrus, the reestablishment of the decree from Artaxerxes, until the coming of the Lord into Jerusalem. And here David even predicts it. Lift up your eyes, pay attention. The maker of heaven and earth is going to be inside your gates. And they just don't get it. They just don't see it until Jesus has to say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets. How often I would have gathered your children the way that a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. You just don't get what's happening right now. So I think David is speaking prophetically about what's going to happen on God's holy hill. And that God himself is going to enter the gates and that not only should the people be aware of it, the gates and the doors themselves should be aware of it. That's how momentous it is that the one who owns everything, who created everything, is entering the gates of the ancient city. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Think about that. Selah. After an announcement like that, and it's right in their scripture, you can see why Jesus would hold them guilty for not recognizing who it was that had entered their gates. You can see why he would hand out curses over them and say that the blood of all the prophets that were killed in Jerusalem was going to fall on Jerusalem. So I will leave you with this thought for tonight. Who is the king of glory? I mean, in the end, who is the king of glory? Yahweh. Yahweh, and only Yahweh. He alone. His son, Jesus Christ, is the king who in Psalm 2, which Tom read for us tonight, God has already announced, I'm going to set my king on my holy hill. Jesus Christ is going to be the king who's going to rule from Jerusalem. That was decided way back in David's time and part of the Davidic covenant, that Christ himself is going to rule from Jerusalem. So yet again, Jerusalem can be told, look up, be aware, open your eyes, lift up your heads. Who's going to come through your gates? Who's going to rule on David's throne from Jerusalem? Who is going to be in charge of the nations of the world? 
It's the king of glory. And who is the king of glory? Yahweh himself, God himself, who David started out by describing as the one who has made heaven and earth and everything in it. So the short version of that psalm is God is sovereign and God is going to set up his king in Jerusalem and the whole world better lift up their eyes and pay attention. Not just the people who have been forewarned over and over again and yet are still not going to get it and to this very day still don't get it and to this very day are still rejecting it. But Jerusalem itself is going to be honored and blessed with the very righteous creator of the the whole universe sitting in absolute kingly splendor from Jerusalem. And they've been told from time immemorial that this is coming. The first time he came to Jerusalem, they ended up rejecting him and killing him. Second time, he's coming back with a rod of iron. I would agree with David. Pay attention. Any questions about that? And look, I think you all kind of owe me because you're getting out of here 10 minutes early. So I'll collect on Sunday. Uh (laughs) (laughs) It'll all be (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.